So folks, we're, we're continuing through uh, Jeremiah uh, on our, our reading this morning. It's uh, from Jeremiah chapter 18. So let me encourage you to open a Bible. There's Bibles in the, the pews and the chairs around you. Uh, open a Bible or open your, your phone or your device and be following along from chapter 18 of Jeremiah. We're reading from one, uh, verse 1 to verse 11. Let's just pray for a moment as well as we come to God's Word. Father, we sang earlier, we welcome you with praise. So we welcome you also with prayer. And we welcome you in this place, moving by your Holy Spirit and speaking from your living Word. So Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. Show us your love, show us your truth, show us yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 18, 1 to 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn, turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series, Jeremiah, Life Before Death. And as we've worked our way through Jeremiah over these past number of weeks, we've looked at different issues that the passages have raised for us. And today our reading throws up for us the issue of sovereignty and free will. Yep, I know I can pick them, can't I? But this morning the reading uh, raises for us questions around the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. For here in verse 6 we see, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel, declares the Lord. Now there's the sovereignty of God. And then it goes on to say in verses 8 to 10 of our reading, if a nation repents of its evil, and if a nation does not obey me, this clearly implies that a nation or an individual can choose to repent of evil or not to, can choose to obey God or not to. There's humanity's free will to make choices. And I guess as we look at this issue this morning, we must remember that as with many things in the Christian life, there is a biblical tension to be held between two extremes. 
We see this in other areas of theology and of the Christian life, don't we? In areas such as the tension between law and grace, or, or between justice and mercy. So it is with sovereignty and free will. There is a biblical tension to be held between the two. You see, we cannot go off one end of the scale and, 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 and say that God is so sovereign and, and, and so dictatorial that we're just pre-programmed robots with absolutely no agency of our own. And at the same time, we can't go off the other end of the scale and say that we have, we, we're totally free and absolute freedom to, to trash God's creation and to thwart His plans for it. And you know, if we can't fully understand this issue of God's sovereignty and our free will, then that's understandable, if you understand me. Because Pete Gregg at Summer Madness recently was talking about this sort of thing, and he, and he said, you know, we will never completely understand God. We just won't. And thankfully, that's the case, really, isn't it? We will never understand God because He is God and we're not. He created the universe whereas we, on the other hand, have a brain the size of a small football. You see, we will never understand fully God. But He does, nevertheless, He invites and He encourages us to understand Him better and to trust Him fully. So as we trace this, this, these themes of sovereignty and free will through Scripture this morning, then let us listen up for what He wants to reveal to us for what we can learn as we seek to both understand Him better and to trust Him more fully. In our reading, the potter represents God and, and His sovereignty over His creation. But at the same time, the people clearly have free will to make choices. So what does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, I guess the sovereignty of God is one of the most important, it is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian theology, as well as one of the perhaps hotly debated you see, whether God is actually sovereign or not is not really what Christians debate. We're all agreed that God is preeminent in power and in authority. In our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four asks us, what is God? And the answer is that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is sovereign, you see, for God is omnipotent few big words coming for you this morning, but they're good. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing, and He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That's our God. So let's look at, at why we believe that. Let's look at our biblical warrant for each of these, just taking a couple of sample verses for each. Firstly, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. You see, in the beginning, the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 19, John hears all of heaven declare, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. You see, there is this picture, this imagery of God as both all-powerful creator and as all-reigning king runs throughout the whole of Scripture runs throughout the whole of the Bible. Nothing is beyond God's control. He is creator and king. Nothing beyond His control. Secondly, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. 1 John 3, 
God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. He knows everything. Acts 15, James writes, known to God from eternity are all His works. God knows everything. You see, nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing. And thirdly, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The psalmist writes, and well, the psalmist asks in Psalm 139, he asks, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he answers, because he knows the truth. He knows, he says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In Jeremiah itself, we read, God says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You see, God is everywhere and nothing happens outside of His presence. So God's sovereignty is a natural consequence of His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His omnipresence. That is His all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present nature. And as I said, God's sovereignty is universal teaching of the church. But what is sometimes debated, I guess, is the extent to which God applies His sovereignty. Specifically, how much control does He exert over the wills of people? When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean He rules the universe. But then the debate is over when and where His, his control is direct and when and where it is indirect. When He causes something and when He simply permits something. You see, He can make anything happen, and also He has the power and knowledge and presence to prevent anything from happening. So anything that does happen must at the very least be allowed by God. But the fact that, God's sovereign, that God is sovereign, it essentially means that He has the power and the knowledge and the presence to, to do anything He chooses within His creation, but whether or not He actually exerts that level of control in any given circumstance, well, that's a different question. But often the concept of divine sovereignty is oversimplified. We oversimplify it sometimes. You see, we tend to assume that if God is not directly, openly driving some event, then He's not in control. But of course, such a view of God's sovereignty, it's, it's logically false. If we use a simple illustration, if, for instance, a man were to put an ant into a bowl, a man with an ant in a bowl, the sovereignty of the man is not in question. It's not in doubt. But the ant may try to crawl out of the bowl. But the man does not have to stop him. The man, for reasons known to himself, he may choose to let the ant crawl out of the bowl. But the man is still in control. And there is a difference, we would agree, I'm sure, between allowing an ant to leave the bowl and helplessly watching as it escaped. An inaccurate version of God's sovereignty implies that if the man is not actively holding the ant inside the bowl, then he mustn't be able to do that, which is obviously and simply not the case. But this illustration of the man and the ant, well, it's at least a, a vague parallel of, of God's sovereignty over humanity. God has the ability to do anything He wants, to take action and to intervene in any situation. But He often chooses to work indirectly 
or to allow certain things to happen for reasons known only and best to him. But his will will be furthered and his kingdom will come in any case, for as the psalmist reminds us, Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God's sovereignty means that he is an absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. Everything that happens is at the very least a result of his permissive will. And you know, the right of God to passively allow humanity's free choices is just as necessary for his sovereignty as his ability to proactively and directly enact his will. So God is sovereign, but he, is, he has also given us free will to make choices. We see, for instance, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where the Lord says, I have set, he says this to the people, and this is early on in the God story, and he says to his people, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, now choose. Now choose. Clearly, we have free will to make choices. A free will means that God gives humanity the opportunity to make choices that genuinely affect our destiny, then yes, human beings do have a free will. You see, the world's current state is directly linked to choices made by Adam and Eve in the garden by the exercise of their free will. God created humanity in his own image, and that included the, the ability to choose. However, we know also that free will does not allow humanity to, to do anything that we want. That much is obvious too. Our choices are limited in what is in keeping with our physical and our spiritual nature. For example, physically we may choose to walk, run, or crawl across a field, or not to walk, run, or crawl across a field. But what we cannot choose to do is to fly across a field. We're limited. Our human nature prevents us from flying. In a similar way, you see, spiritually, we're limited. We cannot choose to make ourselves righteous. We cannot make ourselves right with God. Our fallen human sinful nature prevents us from cancelling our guilt. So free will and what we can do are limited by our human nature. But this limitation does not obligate our accountability. It does not mitigate our accountability. The Bible is clear that we have the ability to choose and we also have the responsibility to choose wisely. In the Old Testament, God chose a nation, Israel. But individuals within that nation still bore an obligation to, to choose obedience to God. And individuals outside of that nation, such as Ruth and Rahab, they were free to choose to believe and follow the Lord as well. In Scripture, you see, sinners are commanded over and over to repent and believe. Here in verse 11 of our reading in the Old Testament, God says, turn from your evil ways, each one of you. He's requiring them to make a choice to turn from our evil ways and each one. In the Old Testament, down in the New Testament, there's verses like a stretch scripture, but just taking one from each testament. In, in Acts 3, for instance, Peter exhorts the people, he says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You see, every single call to repent is a call to choose. Every call to repent is a call to choose. The Lord Jesus, he identified the problem of unbelievers when he told them, you refuse to come to me to have life. 
You refuse to come to me to have life. You see, the, the, the inference here being that clearly we could, they could have chosen to come to him. If they wanted to, their problem was not that they didn't have the choice. Their problem was that they didn't want to. They choose not to. So how can humanity, limited by sinful nature, how can we ever choose what is good? Well, it is only through the grace and power of God that humanity, that human is free truly in the sense to be able to make ultimately the choice for salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that works through and in a person's will to regenerate that person to give new birth, to give him or her a nature, a new nature created to become like Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. You see, salvation is entirely God's work, a work of His Spirit, a work of His Word in the life of the individual. At the same time, our motives, our desires, and our actions are voluntary, and we are held responsible for them. Now, the question of why God gives humanity free will often comes up in the discussion around the problems of evil in the world. Someone will ask, why is there so much evil in the world? And the answer is that human beings have often chosen evil over good, wrong over right. God is not to blame for the evil and the wrong in the world. But at the same time, then we may ask, why has God given us free will? Why has God given us free will? And we go back to our verse in, in Deuteronomy 30, where the Lord says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love, that you may love the Lord your God. You see, that's why God has given us free will, so that we can choose to love him, to meet his love with ours. And for love to be real, love cannot be coerced. For love to be real, it must be a choice. It must be a choice, our choice, to love, to love him. And you see, if we did not have the ability to reject God, then neither would we have the ability to truly love God. Genuine love and genuine good can only exist in a world where there, there is an opportunity also for genuine rejection and genuine evil. And you know, it is toward the rejection of God and to evil thoughts and words and deeds that we are inclined in our fallen human state, in what the Bible calls in the flesh. Paul explains in Romans 8, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So in our natural fallen sinful state, we cannot please God. And we are helpless and powerless to help ourselves, but all things are possible. All things are possible with God. You see, the Lord so works in some people's lives to enliven their spirits and to give them a desire to repent and to believe. We read, for instance, as how Paul shared the good news of, of the gospel of Jesus with Lydia in Acts 16. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. As weak and sinful people, we cannot do this on our own. 
but only under the convicting power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Opening our hearts and leading us to respond to the message of the great saving love and forgiveness and grace of God. But it is He who makes this possible. You see, if it were otherwise, if if the saved could then boast that we possessed some sort of wisdom or moral superiority that that caused us to choose to repent and, and, and believe when confronted with the facts, when many others continue to reject the gospel. But we must remember that we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. So no one can boast. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift from God. God's gift to us. And God is not obliged to save anyone, but he has chosen to save some by freeing their wills to choose him and to meet his love with theirs. Others he allows to continue in their rebellion. But in either case, God is sovereign and people make real choices. You see, God sovereignly created heaven and earth and he gave Adam and Eve that free will, the ability to obey him and and, and not to sin, yet they choose to disobey him and to sin. And yet since that day, since that day in the garden, since that day that that, that Adam and Eve choose to rebel against, against God, since that day God in his great love and mercy for us, he has been unfolding a great salvation plan. A plan to rescue us, to save us, and to bring us back to himself. As Paul writes to the Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's his initiative and it's his grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his great love for us, the Father sent the Son to die on the cross for us for our sin so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. And on the third day, he raised him from the dead so that we could have life, life in all its fullness, even life eternal, as we trust in him. He is wooing us back with his love. He's here now, by his spirit and his word and his love, and he's wooing us back with his love. But you see, God does not coerce us to accept him. God will not force us. But he does persuade us with tactics that we cannot refuse. He offers us his simply irresistible grace. His irresistible grace. That's what he offers us. but we must choose to accept it. And then we have God's sovereignty and our free will working together in salvation. You see, the Bible says that we must choose. We must choose God's uh, to be, uh, we must choose God or we will be eternally separated from him as well. We are held responsible for our actions. The first chapter of Romans warns us that there will be no excuses before God for those who continue to choose to reject him, to reject his mercy and his gift of salvation. We ultimately will have no one to blame but ourselves for our sin 
and our choices. You know, they say that back in the garden, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the snake and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. But we, we, we won't get away with that. We won't get away with that. We will be responsible for our own choices. We can choose the grace today, the salvation today, the love of God today. So just as I finish, just as we saw God's sovereignty and human free will working together in our reading in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, so we also see God's sovereignty and human free will working together in the New Testament in the writings of John. John 15, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In his sovereignty, God chooses us. And John says, then we love him because he first loved us. In our freedom, we respond with, to his love with our love. And somehow, just like the potter in control of the pot, and yet with the Israelites given the choice of committing good or evil, God's control and human freedom are perfectly compatible. So what then are we to do? First, we are to trust in the Lord, knowing that He is sovereign. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent everywhere. And you know, God's sovereignty is a wonderful, a wonderful assurance, a wonderful comfort for us, His people. Secondly, we are to exercise our God-given free will. We are to choose. We are to choose to meet His love with ours, and by His grace, we choose to live our lives making wise decisions in His service, in step with His Spirit, and in accordance with His Word. Under the sovereignty of God, we freely submit our wills to His, and we humbly allow the potter to shape us and use us as seems best to Him. Shall we pray for a moment? Let's pray. The Lord is with us, moving amongst us by the power of His Holy Spirit, speaking to us by His living Word. So let's take a moment to continue to respond in His presence and in the silence, to allow Him to shape us, to surrender to His love with ours. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the potter and we are the clay. You are our creator and we are your creation. So keep your hand upon us as the potter and mold and shape us into the people you would have us to be, increasingly into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that even though you are our creator and our king, even so you have granted us free will the ability to make real decisions that really affect our lives. You have given us the ability to repent or not, to do good or evil, to obey or disobey. So compelled by your great love for us, so help us to repent of our sin, to do good and to obey you all the days of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your great grace that compels us. And we pray all these things for your glory alone in the power of the Spirit 
and in the precious name of our crucified, risen, reigning, and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.